Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Lowe's. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, we're talking to crew chiefs, Billy Stockland and Dominic Logano. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. Two brilliant minds, one in pro modified and one in top fuel. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast during our period of isolation and quarantine and no drag racing. Going to keep the content rolling, though, as we have so consistently on NHRA.com, NHRA's Facebook and social media pages, as well as right here on the NHRA Insider. As I've said over the last several episodes, this break has given me a great opportunity with the podcast to talk to people that maybe I wouldn't normally speak to on the podcast during the regular season in the midst of all the competition. Sometimes you just can't tell all the stories or really catch up with all the people you want to. But on this episode... Two guys that I've wanted to talk to in depth for a little while now. Billy Stockland, who serves as the crew chief for Stevie Fast Jackson's championship winning Pro Modified team from 2019. And he is also a guy who's been involved in drag racing on many levels and with a lot of different cars over the years. Going to talk about his history, his past, and uh, kind of his resume, as well as what he's looking forward to in 2020. And Dominic Lagana. Dominic uh, Lagana and his brother Bobby, of course, very well known in drag racing. Bobby working hand-in-hand with Richard Hogan, tuning Steve Torrance's car to the multiple championships and incredible number of race wins that they have accumulated over the last several years. And Dominic works with his brother and with Richard Hogan, primarily working on Billy Torrance's top fuel operation, as well as running his own car, the Nitro Ninja. So... This is a guy who, like his brother, has grown up in drag racing since he was a kid, has had really a unique life experience in the sport of NHRA and IHRA and match race drag racing. For a young guy, he has really been there and done that more so than even some of the the saltier old guys that are out there in the sport. So two interesting conversations that I'm looking forward to having with them and looking forward to sharing with you on this episode of the NHRA Insider. A couple of notes here for this coming week's content across the NHRA social media platforms as well as NHRA.com and NHRA TV. On Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern, we'll be having the second episode of NHRA Rewind Live. And this episode is going to be me, Stevie Fast Jackson, Clay Milliken, and Andrew Hines, and we're going to be replaying the 2019 Amelie Oil NHRA Gator Nationals. And with those three racers, we're going to be reliving that race, hearing the stories from the inside out, hearing the highlights, the lowlights, and some of the more memorable moments from that event. Obviously, Stevie Fast Jackson had a great weekend, came up just short in the final. Clay Milliken had a great weekend, came up just short in the final. And we know what Andrew Hines did, just full-on destruction, including some world record performances at that event. So looking forward to that. That's going to be Thursday, 6 p.m. Eastern. It's going to air on NHRA.com, NHRA's YouTube page, and NHRA's Facebook page. It is live, and there is interactive chat that you can have with us as we're making the show. So if you've ever wanted to watch a drag race in the grandstands with Stevie Fast Jackson, Andrew Hines, and Clay Milliken, Now's your chance. You're going to get their commentary. You're going to be able to ask them questions, and it's going to be a whole lot of fun. 
What else has been going on this week? Well, the NHRA released the Heritage Series schedule. So if you're an NHRA Heritage Series fan or a competitor, your 2020 revised schedule has been released, complete with all the dates, with the races that will be included, which classes will be included at which events for points, and where you can expect to see the hardest core nostalgia drag racing action in both Nostalgia Top Fuel, Nostalgia Nitro Funny Car, and all of the associated sportsman categories like Hot Rod Eliminator, Nostalgia Eliminator, a fuel, junior fuel, 70 index, the gas categories, and nostalgia eliminator, all that kind of stuff. Check NHRA.com for all of that information, and they will keep you up to date on the series. Other things that have been going on this week and will continue to go on this week, we're going to be talking to a bunch of racers on Skype as we have been doing, just keeping tabs on what everybody's got going on. Had a great conversation with Robert Height last week, and we have some great conversations lined up as well. So again, I'm just asking you to stay on top of what we're doing on all of our social media channels. Thank you for listening to this podcast as we continue to work our way through this break, which hopefully will stop at the beginning of June. we got our fingers crossed that we're going to be down there that first weekend in June for the 51st running of the Emily Oil NHRA Gator Nationals. And during that race, we will see a lot of nitro get burned. We'll see a lot of uh, probably a lot of wet eyes during that first qualifying session when we get back to it because it'll be a pretty emotional moment. We've all wanted this pretty badly over the last several weeks, and it gets more and more uh, hard. That, that, that want to get back to it gets more and more strong almost every day. So, Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest onto the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is Dominic Lagana, the man who works on the Nitro Ninja that he owns and operates, and the man who has a big hand in working with the Capco Contractors team. We're going to talk to him about life, liberty, and the pursuit of drag racing. Dom, how you doing? Real good. How about you? Not too bad. And, you know, this is uh, kind of a weird time for all of us, but I have to imagine... For you and your brother, this is probably the longest you guys have ever been away from a drag strip during race season in probably your whole lives. <laughs> yeah, 100%. You know, uh, we always kept busy if we weren't at a national event, match racing. You know, that's how we grew up, match racing. And the racetrack was was and kind of is our vacation, our getaway. You know, we've been lucky enough to turn it into a career now, but. For sure, we are having uh, cabin fever. <laughs> you and everybody else, that's for sure. Um, does this extra time or has this extra time helped you out at all with getting caught up on the Nitro Ninja car? Did you need to get caught up on anything with that? I mean, obviously, we've had more time to do stuff than we ever would have normally. What's uh, What have you been able to use it for? You know, uh, as far as the schedule goes for me, usually during the day, I work at uh, Torrance Racing and help out when I can, and then, you know, on on my time at night i'll go down to our shop which is just down the road and tinker with our car just there's always something to be done whether it's a project or just servicing parts and we were originally planning on going to gainesville and then we uh moved that to charlotte so we were we had our car fairly close okay to run and so and then obviously the torn stuff we were down in gainesville and all of that stuff's ready but as the saying goes, there's always something you can find <laughs> to do, whether it's servicing the equipment, servicing the tractor trailer, doing projects that you've been putting off. So we've just been trying to find stuff to keep busy. And, you know, surprisingly enough, there is a, there is a decent amount to do. No, that is uh, that's good. And, uh, you know, everybody, you know, I always say that the most dangerous thing in the world is drag racers with time on their hands. Right. So as long as you get something to keep you occupied, it should be good. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Uh, you might come up with the next bright idea and uh, you know, some of it may have to do with racing some of it may not 
You know, you mentioned the fact that uh, when you were growing up, if you weren't at a national event of some sort, you were match racing, you know, with your family. And I really want to get into that part of your life a little bit because, you know, so many of us understand where you came from. But I don't know if there's a lot of people that really get how hardcore you guys raced at the height of it with your dad and with your family. So I guess my first question is, when did you first start? Like, at what age were you actually helping to service the race car? How, how, how young were you when you were actually hands on with the car? I mean, uh, I got to believe probably when I was four or five, I was cleaning oil pans and stuff like that and just being a pain in the butt, you know, sure. as a little kid, riding my bicycle around. And, you know, that's how that's how we started. All of us is even my brother when he was my, you know, when he was a baby. It's like our dad took us out and we all went as a family and you did, you know, as a little kid, you did what you could, you know, just helping clean stuff, wax the car or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, even just rooting them on and being there to watch. And I think, you know, now that you look back at it, our dad wanted us to be there to soak in, you know, what drag racing was more than just the racing part itself and, you know, the camaraderie and becoming friends with people and stuff like that. And, uh, so I'd, I'd definitely say four or five years old, I was getting dirty, maybe even earlier than that. <laughs> what kind of teacher was your dad, you know, as you got older and, and took on more responsibility or took on more role, you know, being hands-on with the race car? What kind of teacher was he? He was a great teacher uh, as far as the race car goes. I mean, you know, as everybody knows, we raced off a Ram truck and we kind of had to, whatever we had work, you know, he had to make it work. So we learned a lot of survival uh, survival skills with drag racing that you know that kind of coincides with our life you know and uh, we've taken that but he 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 made work what he had and he always made it to the racetrack and he always had a, a good paint job as was his thing he goes maybe we won't run the best but I want this thing to be lax I want it to look good and you know we and then as time progressed and the cars we started getting more parts you know it's just he took he always learned the next level and the next step of what it would take to make the car go faster. So we've, we've been able to take that and, you know, it's, it's insane to think where we're at right now, you know, not only with our equipment, but having a, such a job as working on, you know, the Torrance family cars and have won these championships back to back and stuff like that. And uh, My dad, it was his dream maybe to be where we are now, but he would, uh, you know, you you could never think that it's actually going to work out this way. Yeah, and and that's one of the things to me that that makes the story, you know, of your family and of of you and Bobby, you know, really so compelling. Is that as as much as you guys learned, as hard as you guys worked back then with your dad, and and what you were able to apply, like you said, running on a budget that you know you guys were running that car on a budget that most big teams today pay more for, for their pistons over the course of a year than you guys were running a whole season on for your entire operation. And I have to believe that that the lessons you learn there still do apply to some degree with what you're doing now, even though the funding is there to do it at a much higher level, so to speak. But what are the things that I guess that the basic lessons, even one or two of them that you learned back then that you can still apply today when, you know, when the shop's bigger and when the resources are bigger, what do you still kind of default back to from those days? You know, uh, the first thing is what, and which it's a way that Hoagie races too, is, you know, the parts will tell you what the car's doing and what it wants. And, you know, that's how we raced all these years and match racing. We didn't have to run the car that hard, but we still wanted to run fast and put on a good show. And we still do. And, you know, it's just listen to the car. It'll tell you what it wants is for sure. A lesson that we learned with him. And as funny as it is, the, 
the survival skills on the road, we learned a lot with our dad, you know, <laughs> yeah. running out of the ramp truck. I mean, it, you know, a dragster was not made to be on that thing. When the funny car was on it, it kind of looked like it belonged. Once we put the dragster <laughs> on the top of it, it's, you know, it's a circus. And it looked like a missile, man. It was the greatest oh, thing ever. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of looks, you know, <laughs> and along with that is it was a 69 Ford ramp truck with over a million miles on it. So the thing was going to break down a lot. I mean, I know one time I was still in high school and I got a phone call through the BOCES auto school that I was at for half a day. They were stuck on the New York State Thruway and it ended up, it dropped the exhaust seat out of the cylinder heads and hung the valves open. So we didn't know at the time, but I left school, grabbed the spare set of heads that we had at the shop here in New York and drove up the Thruway and we changed the heads on the side of the road. And there's a lot of stories like that with the Ram truck and, you know, we've We've, we've uh, I guess, went back to those times a lot when we're stuck with our own trailer. It's like you're in the middle of of uh, Canada or the middle of Montana and you got nothing around and you need to get your rig down the road. So it's there's a lot of survival skills that we learn, uh, you know, just getting down the road because the bottom line is if you can't make it down the road, you ain't going to make it to the racetrack. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm guessing there had to have been moments back then when you were growing up, looking around and doing what you were doing. There had to have been moments when you you, you might have looked around and gone, God, this isn't a whole lot of fun. But I think you seem like the kind of guy that can look back on those moments and understand that they were probably the most important ones for the reasons you just said. Like the times that aren't that fun that you have to figure out how to get through are the things that ultimately you can call on now and maybe – attack a situation that other people would be totally screwed over by you can look at it a different way and go no 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 this is how we're going to handle this now yeah for sure i mean uh even once we got our first small trailer there's a lot of times me and bob were driving tonight to race in the middle of nowhere and just it's like the thing blows two trailer tires or the truck breaks down you know there's so much stuff and it's just like you're in the middle of middle of the road in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and just like what the hell am I doing? Like, what's, you know, it's, it's crazy. And uh, funny as it is, usually those weekends are the ones that end up going better for you on the track. Cause you get to the track and you're already mentally wore out and you're just like, you know, what else could go wrong? And, right. that, you know, thinking back to some of the times we were stuck, we actually had good weekends at the racetrack. So it, and that's what, you know, you can't base your motivation off of, winning all the time because that's not going to happen but when you go out and have a good weekend it, it does make those you know being stuck in the middle of the night worth it for sure and it's a good story to tell when you're when you're sitting around with everybody oh that's a fact you know you uh the, i think one of the hallmarks of of both uh both yourself and and bobby have been the fact that you know you guys forge very genuine relationships with people in drag racing you you really have a, a very strong sense of family you talk about a lot and it's and it's not just lip service it's very heartfelt i think you know, you and Bobby have a perspective, a perspective on drag racing that none of us really can have other than you guys because of your upbringing and because of how you grew up in this sport. But if you can talk a little bit about who the most over the course of your career, who the most important kind of friendships have been and, and not necessarily for helping you get ahead, but who have the, been the people that you can look around and say, you know, this person, I, I created a bond with this person and it really has helped me either as a human being or, or in drag racing. You know, the the first first set of people, actually, you know, as, as we used to ha- keep our race car in New York at our house, and we've moved shops to different places now. You know, now we're in Brownsburg and also Ohio. And, like, uh, the first thing is 
the amount of people in New York that aren't they are they aren't necessarily blood, but they're our family. I mean, you know, God rest his soul, our uncle Alfie passed away last year, and he was he wasn't our blood uncle, but he was he was like our a second dad to us. Yeah, he devoted his life to my dad and to drag racing because he loved it so much. And uh, there are so many old school guys here just in New York, and you know, luckily enough, the ones that are still here, we keep in touch with. I try to see them, and they actually they usually come to the New Hampshire race or the Reading race and some of the match races. And, uh, those guys are definitely a good core of group that kept my dad going. And then, uh, big Jim Weinert and his family, Carrie and Matt and Wes, you know, big Jim was the starter and basically, you know, ran everything for yes. IHRA in its heyday. And, uh, he took us under his wing. We took his kids under our wing and we spent a lot of time and had a lot of, you know, irreplaceable good memories with him on the road throughout the years. And he, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun that he, when we didn't have a shop to keep our stuff, he found us a place in Ohio, which we, we're still there and we're still good friends with the guy that he went to school with. And, uh, so that's another one. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of other name guys that have helped us along the way. You know, Austin Coyle is, uh, his wife is our, was our parents, goddaughter, Lisa. And, uh, so we've been lucky enough to be really good friends with Austin over the years. We spent a lot of time with him, and he was always a, not only just a friend, but a technical guidance for us when we really didn't know what the hell we were doing <laughs> on the race car. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, in my opinion, the smartest guy in drag racing and most innovative. And, you know, to have a guy like that on your side, and not only that, he's a great friend of ours. You know, he was huge. Uh, Mike, Glover, oh, Mike sure. Glover taught us a lot in the IHRA days when we started upgrading our equipment, you know, as everybody remembers when Clay and him were in the Werner heydays and Oh, just killing we it out there. Yeah. Just killing it. You know, they Clover, especially they took us under their wing and kind of guided us to, Hey, this is, you know, you guys raced off the ramp truck. Now this is what it's like to have the correct barrel valve. This is what it's like <laughs> to have a computer yeah. you know, and stuff like that, you know? And along with that, we met Lance Larson. He was, he taught us a lot and, there's a lot of crew chiefs along the way that have helped us too, and yeah, you, know, the, you mentioned Big Jim Weinert, and and I'm glad you did because if if you hadn't uh, to this point in the conversation, I was gonna I was gonna bring him up because I was out in IHRA during the same time that you guys were, and and uh, when Jim had a big role there, and you know you mentioned his sons Matt and Wes, and they basically lived on the road with Jim and Carrie. You know, they were, they were in the big rig. They were, you know, kind of homeschooled kids and they, they spent their time at the racetrack preparing tracks. And, and as they got older, it used to be awesome. You guys would have, uh, I think it was West was the clutch guy, right? It was at West the, when you trained West to be a clutch guy when he was about 12 years old. Yep. Yeah. He was, <laughs> I mean, at West, he did the clutch from 11 or 12 to, till he was about, want to say 16 or 17 and he he could go up with any of the good ones out there I mean, he was amazing that that year we went to the final in vegas he was you know he was doing the clutch he did it all on his own and in between rounds you know you don't have necessarily time to double check and like you know his pack gap was perfect he set the stall he it was amazing and you know that's bob really took him under his wing and taught him to clutch the ins and outs and he he was awesome and it's a his brother Matt would come. Yep, he was more help Big Jim with the track prep and upkeeping the eye tray stuff. But on his spare time, he'd come and help us on the race car too. And it's a you know times like that are definitely irreplaceable. Yeah, and, and to me it was always interesting, and and it was cool because it was like they were they were a couple of kids that again 
you know, not not many people speak the same language that that you and your family did with how hardcore that you were in, involved in the sport. But those two kids kind of lived that lifestyle. So when when I saw that they were involved with your program back then, it made me feel good because it's like, you know what? These are these are guys who definitely fit in here. Right. They definitely fit in. It's a shared experience that so few people have. And, and that was something that you guys shared, which was uh, which was awesome. And, and Jim was Jim was a great guy. I mean, he was a character. We'd have the safety meetings on Friday and and um, just a, a big bear of a guy. But he always had everybody's best interest in mind. Yeah, he. He loved drag racing first and foremost. Loved his family and friends, and he he could be a hard ass, I guess, at times. But it was because he wanted the best possible outcome for what he was given and what he was trying to do. I mean, I heck, I was just I actually just had a dream about this, uh, I guess, incident that happened. Uh, we were in Crandall, Texas, for a new IHRA race. It was a brand new track. And the uh, it was all concrete. I was going to say that the concrete palace down there, man. Yeah, yep. I remember that. So we we went out a week early to help Jim, you know, drag the track because it track it was all fresh. We actually made a test run with our dragster just to see how the track was coming, and everything was okay. But there was a big patch at half track that was chipping up. So now it's like we have four, I think, days before the national events coming into town, and the track in that spot was chipped up bad enough where it wasn't going to happen. So Jim says, well, let's just cut out uh, 50 or 60 feet of this concrete uh, pad, you know, saw cut it. We ripped the track up and repaved it, ended up working all the way till a Wednesday before. And like, we were literally burning the midnight oil. Once we got the track uh, paved, had to let it dry. Then we ground it. And I remember washing the track till, seven in the morning on a Wednesday night, like falling asleep, driving the John Deere tractors. And we were taking, we were in shifts. It was me, Bob, big Jim, Russell was there who now works for NHRA. There was a lot of other people involved. And uh, it's like when you were there on Tuesday and there's a picture with at half track and there's no concrete there. It's like, there's not many people that would look at that and say, we could have a race this weekend. And, uh, you know, big Jim was, he didn't let anything deter him, and uh, we we learned a lot from him too about just surviving on the road, and that was a pretty crazy story though. And we ended up, you know, the race went and everything was all right, but uh, it's pretty wild. And along those lines, do you remember the event that we all were at in San Antonio when they had ground the track and it was too thin? And I think it was I think it was your brother was driving the car that broke through the racetrack, and they repaved like the last they repaved from about seven eight hundred feet to the to the to the lights. Um, yep. and asphalt. And then we ended up running the race eighth mile that eighth weekend. Mile. That was insane. Yeah. yeah. But it was whatever, is that whatever it takes mentality, you know, you, it's, you know, you just got to survive. That's the, that's the way we were, you know, brought up. And I guess it's, there's still a lot of that in us. What, um, what is something for you that you want to continue improving or learning about? Cause, uh, you know, everybody that's, to me, everybody that's successful in drag racing always has that next thing they want to try. Not necessarily the next step in the sport. I'm talking about you as a as a tuner, as a guy who's you know learning constantly about these cars and how to make them work. What is something that you want to get better at? I mean, uh, I I always want to improve myself in everything that I do, whether it's driving the car or working on it or you know helping people set the car up. And uh, I'm just trying to widen my knowledge on everything. Honestly, that's it's a nonstop, you know, uh, Ferris wheel, I guess, or, or carousel, I, you could say, that you're just 
you got to take in whatever you can all the time. And uh, especially in the position that we are now working for the Torrances, it's, it's unbelievable to be able to go to that shop. And it's like, man, we're, we work for a, you know, you have to pinch yourself sometimes. Like we work for a championship caliber top field team. And, uh, a f- and it's also a family team, which is, you know, you really can't find that a lot. So I just try to pay attention as much as I can to everything that's around me and, you know, learn. When I say whether it is driving too, I'm, you know, you always learn something new in the car. And uh, I just want to try and be the best that I can at every part of racing that I do for sure. And that's, you know, it's always my goal. And, and to just be able to get to race with my brother and all of those guys on that car, which are, you know, they're like my brothers. We've all been friends for so long and to, you know, try to continue and do the best possible job that I can. I uh, I like when you're driving out there. I love when you're in the seat because uh, you're an excitable guy. You're you know you wear your emotions on your sleeve when you climb out after a good run. It's uh, it's always cool. Is is driving for you? Is driving for you something that? Um, how important is driving for you versus you know the mechanical end of things versus the driving end? Obviously, you enjoy driving. That's not my question. But in terms of in terms of making a mark somewhere. Is it more important for you to do it as a good driver or more important to you to do it on the mechanical end? Uh, I want, uh, you know, and I, I hate to not, I don't want to sound like I'm sidestepping it, but I want, I would like both, you know, I gotcha. like, I enjoy that. I enjoy working on the cars obviously. And I, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to do both where I can work on it and drive it. You know, I like drive. I love driving the car. It's a heck of a rush. It's a, uh, it's exciting being in it in my eyes just because of all the work that we all put in and I guess putting the pressure on yourself to be the guy that keeps it in the groove and you know doesn't red light or cuts a good light and you know I've I've made a lot of those mistakes and learned along the way and I I would like to be when I come out I try really hard sometimes I have good lights sometimes I have bad lights and sometimes you know everybody makes mistakes but I like to come out and try to be taken seriously as a driver and because you know, not only that, as a when I drive our car, we are a part-time team, and you don't have a lot of opportunities to come out and qualify and win rounds. So, you know, I like to say you got to try and seize every opportunity that you can. So it's, you know, that's all the work that our guys put in. I'm, I don't want to let them them down at all either. So I, I'd say both. I, you know, I want people to, to take me seriously as a mechanic on the car and also as a driver. What is the what is the difference in and I don't want to say mentality because when you show up with your car you want to show up do the best you can you want to try to win the race when you show up with a Torrance car you want to do the best you can to try to win the race but what is the difference mentally for you racing your own car on a weekend versus racing Billy Torrance's car or racing with the Torrance family and I'm just interested in that obviously this is something that you take seriously it's something that you have to do at a at a very serious approach because if you don't it's dangerous and you guys aren't going to put yourself in that position but when you roll into the racetrack with the nitro ninja versus rolling into the racetrack with a with a capco contractor's shirt on what's the difference there uh it i guess there's a little bit more of a, a pressure to not make a mistake i think working for the torrents just because it makes sense yeah and it's it, and it's because there's, they you know they they want the race team a to race as a family and they want to be successful. Sure. And to be successful on the level of the Capco cars, everybody has to be 
a well-oiled machine and be perfect. You know, there's no margin for error. You know, and you could say, well, there's no margin for error also in a part-time team because they can't afford to make a mistake. But some some of the mistakes that you can make are not – I'm not talking about the ones that could cost you to blow up. I'm just – I'm talking about also the setup of the car because, you know, to per, to make eight solid runs down a racetrack and win a race on a weekend is, is hard. But all your guys have to be on the same page. So uh, when a Torrance car is out there, I'm more of like, man, you know, let this thing – it's got to be perfect. Everybody's got to do their job. You know, let's make sure everything's good. But, it, you know, as funny as it is, working for them now for five or six years, however long it's been, I've been able to take that attitude, and we have all have, you know, me, my brother, all of our crew guys, and apply it to the Nitro Ninja. And 100% is one of the reasons that the Nitro Ninja has picked up performance over the years. You know, it's we're able to it's, – it's not everybody can – be a part of that kind of mentality and learn the success of what it takes to make a championship car. And we're lucky enough to have that. So we can also apply that, that, uh, know-how and work ethic to our own car. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's great. For sure. When the, when the capital cars are out, I treat all the equipment and we all do as if it's our own, you know, me and Bob, I guess because we own our own dragster know a little more of, you know, the, the ins and outs and what, what it feels like to take a blow when the car blows up financially, yes. but all of the guys on those teams treat the equipment as their own. You know, they want it to look good. They want it to go up and down the road safely. They want the race car to do good and be safe and, you know, respond to the crew chief's tuning and all that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's for sure. It's coincided with each other. And uh, I can a hundred percent say, where we're at success wise with the Nitro Ninja would not be possible at all, you know, had it not been for the Torrance family and us working for them. And it's a, uh, you know, which is something I'm beyond grateful for. And, you know, I couldn't thank them enough. And, uh, it's, it's pretty cool to be where we're at now. Yeah, that's great, man. I got one last question before I let you go. And that question is if you can, if you can place it, what has been your proudest moment in drag racing so far? Uh, for sure, when we ran our first four-second and 300-mile-per-hour runs off the ramp truck in the same weekend was a top moment, you know, in our career. There was something, you know, when we grew up, you saw Eddie Hill break the four-second barrier, and once we started being more involved, it's like, man, maybe one day we could actually do that, you know. And it happened to be 12 or whatever years later of Eddie Hill's, but it still was special. Uh, that's a top moment. <laughs> Going to the finals that weekend at Las Vegas was a huge moment. There was a – just to make it to a final round was awesome, and we had a lot of people. Big Jim was there. We had my cousins, cousin and uncle there. My dad was there. There was a lot of guys, Steve Rita, a lot of people there that got to experience it. You know, that was our family, and it was a special weekend for us. Uh all the success that we've had with the Torrance family has been unreal. You know, winning the first championship with Steve's car in 2018 was, was crazy huge. And heck, I just watched it on TV the other day. And nice. Pumps all over, you know, and uh, all for sure, all the success with them has pretty, it's been special and something that we're very lucky to be a part of, you know, you, it's, yeah, I get, you know, we've worked hard over it, but it's also, there's a, there's luck involved to, 
to make these relationships that we've had now. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. I, uh, yeah. it's great. And it's a very cool thing to, it's a very cool thing to be able to, to kind of hear you tell some of these stories and to, to be able to look at, uh, look at the situation as it, as it was, as it is and, and what it's going to be in the future. So I really yep. appreciate you taking the time, Dom, uh, you know, one of the good guys out there and it's great to hear from you. And I think fans are really going to like this, uh, this perspective, man. It's cool. I, again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day. Yep, thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. You bet, man. See you at the racetrack. All right. What a great conversation with Dominic Lagana there, talking about his family, his life in drag racing, and, of course, his current state in drag racing, the amount of success that he has had and personal growth over the last several years working for the Torrance team, working with the Torrance team, and fielding his own top fuel dragster. Now on to another intriguing young crew chief in the world of drag racing. This guy doesn't work on nitro cars, but he is very involved in every other aspect of the sport, including Pro Modified. His name is Billy Stockland, and he is a championship-level crew chief with many aspects of drag racing, but most recently, the E3 Spark Plugs NHRA Pro Mod Series with Stevie Fast Jackson. We welcome Billy Stockland onto the show. Billy, how are you? I'm good, Brian. How you doing today? Doing all right, man. And uh, for those of you listening, Billy, the crew chief on Stevie Fast Jackson's championship-winning Pro Modified car last season and has been for a couple years. And, Billy, you're involved in so many different aspects of drag racing. I want to start first on the quarter-mile Pro Mod stuff. And I guess I want to ask you, we've had this conversation before, but just how hard is it to succeed in that category these days? Well, it's super-duper competitive on a bunch of different levels. You know, it's such a good group of racers uh, not that the other venues that we race in aren't, but like in when you go Radio Versa World or, you know, some of the other type stuff, when there's a 32 car field, if you qualify at the top of the field, there's usually going to be a round or two that is really not that difficult to get through. The difference is in the NHRA, there's no gimme rounds, there's no easy rounds. Everybody's a hitter. The group of people that show up just to qualify. Everybody is a formidable adversary. And it's interesting to watch. And, of course, you know, outside of the NHRA series, basically all the other racing you do is eighth-mile stuff. And so if you can talk a little bit from a crew chief's perspective on the back half of the racetrack and just how punishing that happens to be, especially for a supercharged combination like you guys run, to be good. Oh, it's brutal. You know, it's <laughs> it's the, 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 the second half of the eighth-mile, you cannot – you, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you can just run the front half just like you would an eighth-mile car and then ease up for the second eighth-mile on your engine tune-up. And I can guarantee you that there is many a parts manufacturers that are facilitating that myth <laughs> because, like, that is very much not true. Uh, you know, when Stevie and I got back together in 17, when he started running the NHRA stuff, uh, that's basically how we tried to do it. You know, we tried to run the car basically like we would an eighth mile car and then try to keep it together the rest of the run. And, uh, you just can't do it. You know, the second half of the racetrack is, uh, 75% of the failures. So you, you have to gear the car different. You have to look at your, your total philosophical approach to running the engine, running everything about it. And plus most of the eighth mile stuff that we do has lockups in it. Yeah. So like that, that's again, a philosophical change because most of the eighth mile stuff is a much less, you know, it's more of a wild west free for all with the, you know, open rules packages and whatnot. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, you know, and, and and that's one of the things that fascinates me about you and your career is the fact that you've really had a hand in so many different types of race cars. And my understanding is you've, I guess, I don't even want to know my understanding. I want you to tell me as best you can how many different categories of stuff you have touched over the years. Uh, oh, I don't know. I started off mud racing, uh, doing a class that was called Pro Stock. Uh, in the, you know, it was basically stock bodied trucks that had modified frames. And then, uh, you know, we got in trouble because they said you had to have a factory frame that was modified. So, you know, I started building some trucks that we flipped that like we would swap the frame rail side to side and flip them <laughs> upside down. And, you know, and they'd say, well, that's not what we meant. And we'd say, well, that's not what the rules say. You know, the rules say it has to have factory frame rails. And uh, so then I got into drag racing and uh, just in the drag racing, I've done a whole bunch of different stuff. Outlaw 10.5, uh, limited street, uh, small tire stuff, uh, Texas pro stock. I've dabbled with helping some pro stock, pro stocks, uh, pro modified, radio versa world, uh, pro extreme. Uh, yeah, I mean, screw charge. I like screw chargers, pro nitrous. We won some championships there. Um, I don't know. Lots yeah. Of different stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's a fascinating thing for me because we, we so often, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with having a very dedicated concentration. Oh, but X, X, X275. <laughs> and the hits just keep on coming. Yeah. Uh, te, uh, Tex 275, Ultra Street, Limited Street. Uh, I don't know. It's been, it's been a bunch of stuff. What is it that keeps your fascination with this sport? Because you've done you've done and accomplished enough that, you know, if you felt like it going, hey, uh, I've won the U.S. Nationals, I've won championships, I've won every big money radial race there is to win, I've won with nitrous, with screw chargers, with roots blowers. What is it that keeps you engaged and interested in drag racing? Well, there's a couple different aspects. You know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that a big part of it wasn't the social aspect. Yeah. Um, you know, all my friends are racers and, you know, like, um, you know, like, uh, in the last year's time, I've, I've lost both my parents, yeah. uh, my mother just very recently. And, uh, you know, the outpouring of people sending me messages and, you know, guys like just yesterday I heard from, you know, one of me and Stevie both personal heroes, Todd Tudoro. And, you know, it was moving to me to think that, you know, Todd, you know, thought of me in my dark hour, you know, like Todd Tuttero reached out to me to say something, you know, like this is a dude that like I've looked up to since I was a kid. And, you know, and like, I, and when I go to the racetrack, the social aspect is important to me. Uh, I like the challenge. I love drag racing in the, 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 the finiteness of it in that everything is so measurable, you know? So like when you make a change and you do things, it is so, I guess quantifiable, you know, it's not a qualifiable thing. It's quantifiable that you can, you can know, you know, this was better, this was worse. And, and just the, the, the never ending search for the perfect run or even the perfect run for this given set of componentry. And then plus I'm, uh, it is, uh, it's alluring to me, you know, the dangling carrot of something new, something fresh. And that's, that's why I've enjoyed doing so many different things throughout my career because, you know, if I just had to sit there and do nothing but mess with, you know, a blown alcohol pro mod car, that would be a lot of fun and it's a hard challenge and it's lots of great competitors. 
But at some point, even that gets boring when it's just the same thing over and 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 over. For me and Stevie, you know, we like we like the 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 curveball of you know doing something new, trying something fresh, being innovative, coming up with you know a new process or a new part or a new philosophical approach. Yeah, no, that's it's awesome and it's very fun to watch, you know. And and I guess to stick along that line. It's got to be interesting to me to work as closely as you do with Stevie, and, and I say that because you know his personality is is outwardly, of course, very big. He's a he's a big uh, big you know character in the sport of drag racing, if you will. Certainly an incredibly in, intense competitor, and big mouth. yeah, <laughs> he's got a big mouth. But I mean, I guess why does that partnership work between you two? Why does that? Why does the partnership work as well as it does between you and Stevie? Well, I'd say primarily because he's one of my best friends and I love him and he's just, we've become very, very close and good friends. Uh, part of it is, is we're kind of fire and ice. You know, he's, I'm very much the myth, the, uh, the, the, the take things in a very slow methodical approach. And he's very much the throw darts at the dartboard. <laughs> right. Uh, there's not a dude on the planet that can't sort out a combination faster than Stevie Jackson and get you remotely close to what it's going to be capable of running. He's the best I've ever seen, hands down, bar none. He is it. You know, he is killer. But then when it gets to the nitpicking time of, you know, hey, you know, we need to get the last little bit out of this, that's maybe not his forte. And so, like, the combination of me and him – one of the things that I like is when Stevie and I race together for an extended period of time, I feel like I make him better and he makes me better because I rub off on him that he needs to look at things a little closer and be a little more you know, methodical in doing it. And he rubs off on me when I get to where I'm you know, I'm bumping in the corner, you know, like the dude in the back in the basement asking for, you know, <laughs> where's my where's my swing line stapler? You know, when Stevie kind of baps me in the back of the head and says, hey, dumbass, you know, why don't you start moving in this direction and take a little bigger clip the first time or two? And then, you know, so in doing that, the partnership of me and him works together really good in that he helps me, you know, get out of ruts and get moving in the right direction. And I help him. And, and, and you know, it, it's it's a good symbiotic relationship between the two of us. What is the, you know, and I don't know if it's the if it's just simply yours or the right one, but what is the mentality that somebody that's in the role that you have needs to have to succeed? Because I feel like if you're some sort of a mercurial mercurial personality, it doesn't seem like you'd last very long successfully in a role like you have and have had with so many different people. So talk to me about that because it's not all fun and games at the racetrack on every given weekend. No, you need to be very methodical. You need to be very, uh, like do the same thing over and over and over and over and over because when you start introducing variables, you know, that are unforeseen, you just, the whole thing just winds up in a dumpster fire, you know, four <laughs> runs and down, you, you know, like the, the thing is, is there's lots of dudes and I know I always say this and I always say there's lots of dudes that are way smarter than me and people always go, Oh, Billy, you're smart. And, like, you can ask Stevie, I'm really not that smart. Like, I'm just, I'm mythical, you know, I, I, I'm very 
set in doing the same thing. It's, it's not that I'm good at figuring out what to do. It's that I take really good notes and I know that these 17,000 things that I've done 14 times in a row and didn't work. Well, I'm not going to do those things again, you know, and like, there's lots of dudes that are really, really, really smart guys out there in drag racing right now that some of them have been tremendously successful and some of them, and sometimes you've got guys that are so smart that it hurts them. You know, they get caught up on a, no, I know I need to have this wheel speed or no, I know I need to have this or no, I know I need to have that. You know, you got to have the right amount of, of, of being uh, methodical, you know, with what you do, you've got to be intelligent enough to see the patterns and know what's going on. And you got to have enough dumbass in you to keep going back to the racetrack. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, and the, the last part of that, I think, is if we look at anybody that's been successful in drag racing, there is definitely that element of their career where you just have to sometimes just keep your head down and keep trying because eventually what you're doing is going to work out. Who, um, who, as you were kind of coming up through the ranks, who did you look at? Who do, who do you look at still, I guess, um, other than, you know, you mentioned Todd Tuttero, but who are those people that strike you as people that are touchstones for your career? People as, as you're a kid following drag racing and got more involved and you looked at it and you said, man, if I could, if I could get 10% of what that guy has in his head, I'll, I'll be okay. Well, you know, like it's a really ever evolving thing for me, you know, like when I was a kid, the guy that took me mud racing, you know, is a guy named Bill Langham that, you know, I thought if I could just figure out everything he knows, I'll be, you know, I'll be so smart. And he taught me a lot about, you know, like the mysteries of how this distributor, you know, like, you know, so that little shaft goes down in there and there's a little bronze thing and it spins on the <laughs> camshaft. What are you talking about? Like, what, what kind of tomfoolery is this, you know? You know, like, I thought there was some sort of magical being that lived down in there, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old that just made the spark go to the right wire. And then, you know, like, I got older and, you know, like, I went racing uh, Outlaw 10-5. I started helping the Herzog family, you know, Aero Machine out of Brenham, Texas. And Scott Herzog was a mentor for me for years. And then, you know, later I started diving off into watching, you know, Frank Manzo and the Alcohol Funny Car, who I had the pleasure of racing with later. You know, I always was a big uh, fan of Jason Scruggs, uh, his his uh, his willingness to kind of let it all hang out over and over. And uh, and, you know, he was a, uh, you know, he was inspirational for me to watch because he just he was very timeless in that you know he 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 seems to he seems to always be a trendsetter and a record setter you know his stuff always runs good yeah uh, i know in the nhra stuff he struggled to be consistent but everybody just needs to watch out because he will come and be a formidable you know he will become uh competitive there not that he's not now but you know he showed us that at the race in orlando uh, of course, Todd Tuttero, you know, uh, you know, is a tremendous influence, has been forever. Um, I can remember uh, driving to Kennedale, you know, in different places in sure. Texas when when those guys would come because, you know, like to me, it was exciting to go watch those guys. Uh, I don't know. As soon as I get yeah. off the phone, I'll. 
I'll think of other people. But <laughs> no, that's a that's a great list, and uh, you know, it, to me, it's a cool list because it it it, wa- it works its way through you know some of the layers Shit, of the sport. Shannon Jenkins at one point, you know, like I when I was doing a bunch of nitrous racing stuff, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, the Ice Man, you know, he was. I had that poster on the wall with him. You know what the Ice Man did? Oh yeah. Yeah, I had the poster. I had the poster on my wall. So I've said this to a couple people. When I was a kid, I had the poster of uh, Frank Manzo standing at the Amelie deal next to his uh, next to his uh, like it was like a magazine pullout deal that folded out. Yeah. And then I had the the Flowmaster deal with the Thompson doing the big wheel stand with sure. the Chevelle. With the Chevelle, yep. I had the poster that had Musi Christensen and Annette on it, and like. All of those people now are my friends, and like I talk to all of them, and like, you know, I make fun of all of them, and it's like, <laughs> so to me, it's a crazy thing, you know. Now, if I could just find that chick leaning against the the, the Lamborghini Countach, <laughs> your life would be complete. Yeah, <laughs> my life would be complete, but you know, she probably, she probably looks like, uh, you know, like Daisy Duke does now. What's her name? You know, it's Catherine, Catherine, Catherine Bach. Uh, yes, Catherine Bach. Yes. Yeah, she didn't age quite so well, but it, <laughs> no, it's great, man. It's uh, it's again, uh, you know, the, the getting some insight into into where you've where you've come from and how you've gotten to where you're at, and and speaking to Dominic Lagana early in this earlier in this show, you know, there are a lot of similarities in the stories as far as you know, uh, it has been a a road that you've both kind of really worked hard at and, and chipped away at, and 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 really with your own kind of hard work have have and the help from others of course that have taught you along the way but you've stuck with it long enough to be really successful do you remember and you know go ahead I, I haven't i haven't said anything about phil either you know phil yes. is phil's a big part of that equation too so i feel like i have maybe marginalized his input you know we all kind of have our own specialty of what we do and you know phil is tremendously resourceful is a super smart dude and like he he is really, really good at making everything function and work and working together. And, you know, like, so like when you start having the dude that can put it all together and make it go down the racetrack and, and get it reliant in, you got the dude that's always on top of what's new and what's out there and making it actually function in the car. And then you got, you know, the, the nerd in the trailer that's nitpicking everything. It makes us, you know, like the combination makes us, work pretty well together it does and again it's uh when when phil became a full-time kind of uh, part of of stevie's operation this year i think it's uh, i think it's cool and it's maybe not the best news for everybody else but it certainly was a great addition to be a full-time part of that team and those guys have a, a stevie a and trem- phil. tremendous addition yeah, yeah tremendous addition one last question before i let you go billy do you remember the first big race you ever won as the guy leading the tune on a race car and it doesn't i'm just whether it was a mud race whether it was a drag race where the weather wasn't even that big a race. Do you remember the first time you won and were the guys that were the guy that was leading the decisions on making a call? Yeah, it would be Outlaw 105 because you know when I was doing the mud race and stuff, I always was somewhat uh under somebody else's tutelage because it was his stuff. When the Outlaw 105 uh when I went and uh and went and uh won a race at Huntsville, Alabama, it was an Orska deal. And uh, I was good friends with a guy named Craig Miller, who he and I are still good friends. Uh, unfortunately, he can't, you know, he doesn't race uh, Outlaw 10.5 or anything fast anymore because he had a pretty bad wreck. 
uh, and kind of shook his noggin loose a little bit. But, you know, so like he's not supposed to get in something where he can get hurt. He now does some 6-0 and 7-0 racing, but great dude, great family. Uh, I was there, and uh, the first time I, you know, I, I had come from Texas, and, uh, you know, at that point, the East Coast guys, you know, did not treat us with much respect, and uh, that was a very, very big thing for me the first time that I went out there, and I was not just competitive, but I won the deal, and it also paid $10,000, which at the time seemed like winning the lottery. <laughs> You know, I had a 32-foot trailer pulling it with my three-quarter-ton pickup. You know, $10,000 keep you going for a long time. Man, that's great. And uh, I said one more question. This will be the final one, I promise. I know you got work to do there back in Texas. But do you think part of your success and part of the fact that you've been able to do what you've done in drag racing on so many different levels comes from the fact that you're not somebody, at least you don't strike me, as somebody who has their eye on some grand prize. Like you don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to figure out a way to, to work my way into this particular job. Do you think a lot of your success has come from the fact that you've taken opportunities that have come, you've concentrated your ability, and that has led you to the next step as opposed to having some diabolical plan to claw your way to the top? Yeah, no, yeah. I keep trying to think of the cartoon guy, the mastermind, you know, with the big head with the glass bubble. <laughs> Pinky in the no, brain. De- <laughs> yeah, yes. That's definitely not me. Absolutely. In drag racing, you know, uh, you know, I know earlier I was just talking about, you know, being, you know, methodical, methodical. You have to be open-minded. If you're not open-minded in drag racing, if you can't flow with, go with the flow, if you focus on the sky is falling because there's this rules change and this guy is effing me and this guy is screwing me, like you have to roll with the punches and be willing and able to make changes as you go. Because if you wake up and you say every morning, my my diabolical plan is to do this with this componentry, with this goal, you will never be successful here. You have to be fluid and flexible which, yeah, like absolutely. The answer to your question is yes. You, 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 that is a big part of why we, me and my group as a whole are successful because, you know, when the, when, when the, when the winter time comes and we, oh, now it's radial time, you know, we just roll all the NHR stuff in the corner and we go do this other stuff for a while and, oh, now they're going to change the rules. Oh, now we're going to put a roots blower on it. Now we're going to do a screw blower. You know, and like, yeah. you know, we wake up and, you know, Stevie and I talk about, well, we'll, we'll make the final call, what program we're going to show up with, you know, two weeks before the race. We'll see what the rules, <laughs> it's just a true story. We'll see what the rules changes are going to be and what the weather looks like it's going to be. And we'll make a final call on what package we're going to put together and put in a car. Like, you know, you, you, you have to be fluid. Yeah. Well, Billy, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. Uh, Again, great insight into your mindset, great insight into the history of your career, and uh, I look forward to uh, getting down to Gainesville and watching some pro mod action with you, man. All right, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. And that is why I love making these podcasts so much. Two really spectacular conversations. I feel like we all come out of this, myself included, hopefully you, with a lot better depth of understanding with Dominic Lagana and with Billy Stockland, not only their personal understanding, but how they approach racing, how they approach this uh, career that they have built for themselves, each individually, each on their own path, and each in their own way. 
Another fun episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast comes to a close as we get ever closer to what we hope is the restart of the NHRA 2020 Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series Tour at the 51st running of the Emily Oil NHRA Gator Nationals on June 4th, 5th, and 6th down there in Gainesville, Florida, or I should say the first weekend in the month of June. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another NHRA Insider Podcast where we'll get another couple of interesting guests and probe them to find out about their careers, their life, and their love for the sport of drag racing, both inside the NHRA and outside of it. I'm Brian Loans, and I sincerely appreciate you listening and sticking with us as fans of the National Hot Rod Association. Make sure you follow along on our social media channels, NHRA.com, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, on NHRA.tv. Thanks, all. We'll see you soon.